Today's uh, catechism question, question six, how can we glorify God by loving him and obeying his commands and laws? One of our acts of love is obedience, submission to the word of God. Well, let's bow, shall we, in a word of prayer. Father God, uh, we ask that you would guide our time, that our time would be profitable, and that you would well equip us. And even as we talk about glorifying you, we know that one significant way is to obey and honor your word. And so as we look at your word this morning in Acts 13, give us insights in how we might glorify you, worship you, obey you, exalt you by honoring your inspired and errant word. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Perhaps some of you have read the book by Ernest Gordon, Through the Valley of the Kwai. If so, you know that it takes place from about 1943 to 1945 in Miramar, Burma. It's the Burmese railroad that the Axis powers, Germany and its allies, forced through Thailand to resupply the Axis forces. What you probably may remember is that that bridge was actually built by the Allies, Allied prisoners, in fact. At the point of death, they were forced to build this bridge over the River Kwai. They were part of a Japanese internment camp and in fact, 13,000 Allied prisoners died building that particular bridge, which, by the way, as soon as it was built, the Allies bombed and destroyed. Now, if you know anything about that Japanese internment camp, it was filled with individuals. There were Brits and Scots. There were those from Australia and the United States, four major groups, and they were under the most oppressive conditions imaginable. They were on the edge of starvation, didn't have enough clean water, dysentery was rampant, they were cold from the elements. And because of that, there became a dog-eat-dog -dog mentality within this allied camp. Brits would not help Scots. And Australians would not help Americans, and vice versa. And so the Scots developed what they called a buddy system. They literally called it a mucker system. You had your own particular mucker, and you were assigned to watch over your buddy's back, and he was assigned to watch over your back. And there was a man named Angus. And Angus's mucker... A fellow Scotsman was on the verge of death. In fact, in the eyes of everyone in the camp, this man was already dead. There was no chance that he would live. He was already essentially six feet under. To everyone but his mucker, Angus would not let go of his mucker. He gave him his food as small 
a portion as he had. He gave him his water. He gave his mucker his blanket to protect him from the elements. And somehow Angus nursed his mucker back to health. But he died. Angus died. He died of starvation. He died of dysentery. He died of a lack of water. He died of a lack of warmth. He died precisely because he cared for another human being. He preferred that human being's life over his own. And that shocked the camp. That shocked the allies. And suddenly they began to reassess how they were living in internment. And Americans started helping Australians who started helping Scots, who started helping Brits. And they turned into the allies once again. And they decided that they would have a church. They dubbed it the church without walls. And some of them made instruments, somebody led a choir, several preached. It was so alive that some of the Japanese soldiers actually came to the church without walls. They also had a hospital among themselves, a university among themselves, and they began to serve one another. And because of that, many more survived than would have survived if they had had this dog-eat-dog, every man for themselves. And they impacted one another, and they impacted the soldiers who interned them. Their diversity actually made the camp much better than it ever could have been if it were every nationality for itself. That's exactly what happens in today's text. Diversity is front and center in today's text. And it is the kingdom of God, women and men across ethnic lines, gender lines, financial lines, socioeconomic lines, pulling together to reach a very lost city of Antioch, today in present day Turkey, that God used. Let me pick up in Acts 13, one to five. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And we've got to ask ourselves this question. Usually when we have a list of names, we're not given details like we are here. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why are the details given? And I think the details are clearly given because these five are nothing alike. They're all raised in different parts of the world. They look different. They were educated differently. They come from different stratas of life. And yet they're pulling together for the kingdom. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. As you and I begin in verse 1, we read about the church of Antioch. Now we've already talked about the church of Antioch several times. We're told by Josephus it's the third behind Rome, Roman city. In other words, it's the fourth great city of the Roman Empire. You have Ephesus and you have Alexandria and of course you have Rome itself and then you have Antioch which is about a half a million individuals. At that time it was part of Syria. Today it is part of Turkey. It was a teeming city. It was large. It was in charge and it was immoral. If you were to go to ancient Antioch you would see the temple of Daphnia The temple of Daphnia is in a set of gardens with all sorts of rivers and all sorts of small little waterfalls. It's a beautiful place. At least I'm told that. Never been. And there the temple was built because of mythology where there was a nymph named Daphnia who actually became part of a laurel tree fleeing the amorous pursuits of the false god Apollo. Well, because of that story, they built this temple to Daphne, which became a center of prostitution and a center of gambling. That's a microcosm of the macrocosm of what the city of Antioch was really like. And it is here because God loves people and God wants people to come to himself that God began to set up a church of Jesus Christ. And verse 1 tells us that there was Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now think about these individuals. We know something about Barnabas. We learned about him in Acts chapter 4. We know that Barnabas is a Levite, so he's from the priestly family. He doesn't grow up. He isn't raised in Jerusalem. He's outside the synagogue, the 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. He's out in the diaspora and he's proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming Christ on an island. Beyond that, we know he's a wealthy individual. He is one of the few who are part of the tribe of Levite that actually owns land and he gives his land to the church to advance the kingdom. So we can say of Barnabas, he's priestly and he's wealthy. Next we have Simon or Simeon, depending on your translation, the Niger. Now we don't know a lot about this individual, but we know some things. We know that he is probably Roman based on his name, though certainly the next one, Lucius, is Roman. But Simeon is probably Roman. He's got a much better tan than I do because Niger means black. It's talking about the skin color and what part of the world he comes from. And his name is actually not of the senatorial class or the equestrian class. He's of the lower middle class or perhaps the lowest of classes. The next individual, Lucius of Cyrene. Again, we don't know much about him. But we do know that his name is Roman. In fact, it is so Roman, we probably have a former Roman soldier among these five. Now think about that. You got some Greeks. You, you got 
Gentiles in there. You got Jews and you got a Roman soldier. And again, he is not of the senatorial class. He's not of the equestrian class. He's of the lowest of low classes. And then we have Menaean. My translation says that he is a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That would be Herod Antipas. I think that's not the best translation. I think actually a better translation is he is a relative of Herod the Tetrarch. I don't think he's a friend. I think he's got blue blood coursing through his veins. And so we have a priest who's wealthy, two Romans who are very poor, one of one skin color, one of another, and now we have a blue blood among them. And finally, we have Paul of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, but a Jew of Jews. Not only a Jew, but he's a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And he is trained under Gamaliel, the greatest scholar of the day. So he has an Ivy League education. And so you think about these five individuals and what do they have in common? Christ. That's what they have in common. They have Christ in common. They're raised in different parts of the world. They're raised in a day and age where Greeks hate Romans and Romans hate Greeks and both hate Jews and Jews hate them both. They're raised in a day and age where the intelligentsia looks down on those who are blue collar and the blue collar think the intelligentsia don't work and the rich hate the poor and the poor are taken advantage of by the rich. And you've got all of these categories among five individuals that God raises up to reach a city for the gospel. A city that is very far from the Lord, the city of Antioch. And notice that the text goes on, verse 3 and following, to say that in order to reach the city, God has the leadership. He has the Christian church fasting and praying, setting aside meals, spending time in prayer, turning their face to the wall, asking God to do what only God can do. Because we have a God who delights in people in cities coming to the Lord, but we have a God that delights to use individuals who will set aside time to pray, to fast, to seek the Lord individually as families, as a community of faith. And it's a fair conclusion to suggest if that's how God responds 2,000 years ago, our God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow still responds to individuals who are bond together by Christ, sisters and brothers in the Lord, who may not have anything else in common, yet they hold Christ in common. They turn their face to the wall. They pray, they fast, they seek God, and then they are commissioned to go out. We see God work this way. I think of Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20. Here we have a Judean king. Remember, Judah had six godly kings. Israel, after the division, never had a godly king. One of the godly kings is Jehoshaphat. He kind of waffles. And we have Jehoshaphat, and his nation is under attack, not only by the Moabites, but the Amorites. Hordes of the enemy are standing against Judah. 
it's not going to go well. And what does the text say in verses three and four? It says he turns his face to the wall and he calls out a nation to begin to pray. Let me read the text to us. Second Chronicles 20, three and four. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then we read 14 and 15. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. And then in the midst of the assembly, he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. The battle is not yours, but God's. So here, nice catch. Here we have... uh, an entire nation, they're in jeopardy, they're in trouble, and they're about to be attacked. And God delights when his nation turns their face to the wall, when his people turn their face to the wall, when they fast and they pray and they ask God to do what only God can do. And you remember the rest of the story. They woke up the next morning expecting that they would be destroyed. But they prayed, believing that God could do something miraculous. And in the middle of the night, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they fought one another. And many died, and those who didn't die perhaps fled. And it took the Jews three days to collect the plunder of what was left behind. God delights. He delights to work through his people who work together regardless of socioeconomic or regardless of skin color or regardless of ethnicity or gender, who work together believing that God can move, turning to God, turning our face to the wall, praying, fasting, and asking God to do what only God can do. That's Barnabas. That's Paul. Let's remember, God is still using people like us to advance his kingdom. He's not using the angelic world to proclaim the gospel, maybe to be ministering spirits to us, that's what scripture says, but he's not using the angelic beings to share the gospel. He's using us. He's calling us to carry the gospel ball, the discipleship ball, the fellowship ball locally and globally. Let me offer an analogy, very uncolorful analogy. Let's suppose for a moment that you are watching a football game. In this particular football game, the offensive line, each guy weighs 120 pounds soaking wet. On the defensive line, each guy weighs 300 plus pounds. And you can already see we've got a little bit of a problem, right? And so the offensive coordinator sends in the play. And the play is the quarterback is to hand the ball to Johnson, his running back. But in the huddle, there's a little bit of discussion. And the quarterback changes the play. And instead of handing the ball to Johnson, he tries a a quarterback sneak between the tackles and he is smeared. 
And the offensive coordinator is a little annoyed. He called in a play and nobody did it. So he sends in a sub with another play, give the ball to Johnson. And in the huddle, there's a little bit of discussion and the quarterback changes the play and a receiver comes in motion. He hands the ball to the receiver who is pancaked. And the offensive coordinator is very upset. And this time he just screams from the sidelines, give the ball to Johnson. And Johnson is in the middle of the huddle. He looks across at these BMS and he calls back, Johnson doesn't want the ball. <laughs> maybe, maybe some in the church of Jesus Christ are Johnson. Maybe because of culture wars. Maybe because of a, canc uh, a cancel culture that we live in. We would prefer to sit on the sidelines. We would prefer not to be identified as Christ followers. We would prefer not to take the gospel ball, the discipleship ball, the morality of the Lord, the integrity of the Lord, the morals of the Lord, Johnson doesn't want the ball. But Barnabas and Paul, they're willing to take the ball and they're willing to set a model for us to take the ball. And these two, according to verses four to six, they go down to Seleucia and then Cyprus, Salmas, and finally Paphos. And let me read again verses six to eight from our text. It says this. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar is simply a Hebrew word. It means son of Jesus. Bar is son. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is an incredible opportunity to share the gospel. They have an audience with the proconsul. A proconsul is a big deal. This is somebody in the Roman Empire that's over an entire providence. And this particular man, Sergius Paulus, he has a lot of influence and he's listening to the gospel. He's listening to the word of God, but he's also listening to a man named Elymas, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. Now, when you call somebody Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, it's actually saying that Elymas is associating with Christianity. He is claiming to be a Christ follower. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Verse 10, Paul's a Paul tells us that he is a son of perdition, a son of Satan himself. Now we might expect a major spiritual battle exactly here in Cyprus. Why? Because they have had pantheon of pantheon of pantheon of false gods brought into their society. They've been destroyed by Assyria and Egypt. The Phoenicians have been here. The Greeks have been here. The Romans have been here. The Assyrians have been here. All of these countries have been here. And every time they come, they bring in more false gods. So this is a demon playground. And the demonic is not something just thought up by those who write horror films or by theologians who need to go decaf. 
The Bible is telling us that our battle is not against one another. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. There is a demonic world around us led by Satan who desires to either lead Christians, Christ followers, away from carrying the ball, a life of inactivity in Christ, or to blind the unbelievers of this world and to leave this world in darkness. And there's a cost. There's a cost to confronting Satan and the demonic. And, G and Paul and Barnabas are willing to pay the cost. See, we live in a culture a lot like this. Several times already, as I've preached through the book of Acts, I've pointed out Isaiah 5.20. It's one of those verses I think we ought to have front and center in our life. In Isaiah 5.20, it reminds us a day is coming. We are there. We are there. Where culture will call God's good evil and God's evil good. And Isaiah prophesied this 2,700 years ago that that is what is going to happen. It's happened many times in history. It's happening again where society calls God's good evil and God's evil good. Let me offer some examples. There are so many. I think of life. Life is from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. God tells us very clearly in Psalm 139, 13 to 16, that he is in the womb fashioning the child. And he claims ownership of that child. And so we value life. And Exodus 20 says that we are not, verse 13, we are not to murder rot saw, which is taking innocent life. And so out of love for others, we stand for life. I think of the gospel. Paul tells us that the gospel is offensive. It's nonsense to the intelligentsia. What is the gospel? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, Acts 4, 12. The most loving thing that you and I can do is tell people about salvation by faith in Christ alone. It's the most loving thing that we can do. Sometimes we think, you know what? <laughs> Religion and politics, it's rude to bring them up. But salvation is in Jesus. Eternity exists for all. And eternity with Christ only exists for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And they will be saved. The most loving thing you and I can ever do is tell people about Jesus. I think of a culture that has all sorts of gender dysphoria. And I'm not mocking that. That's real in some people's life. But the most loving thing I can ever do is to say, you know, you can't imagine the damage that you will potentially do to your future. God tells us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that he made them male and female. And so if you 
want the best you. You understand how God has created you. And you don't tamper with that. That's the most loving thing that I can do to somebody who suffers gender dysphoria. Not winking at it. Not saying this is okay. Not ignoring it. But saying the most loving thing I can do for you is to tell you that the best you that God created is how he created you. The most loving thing I can do about marriage is to stand with Genesis 2 and 3 where God created a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. The most loving thing I can do about society's ails is to stand with Colossians 3, 18 to 21, where the nuclear family becomes the backbone of society and gives us the strength to push forward. Is it going to be easy to stand in those paths? No. But I don't want to do it with belligerence and anger and hatred. I want to do it with love because God loves people and God calls me, you, us to love others. But loving others is sometimes hard because we have an enemy. My enemy is not flesh and blood. It's the principalities and powers and forces of this dark world that blind the world around us so that the world calls God's good evil and calls God's evil good. But Paul and Barnabas pressed on anyway in spite of an Elymas who's sent by Satan to stand in the path. Let me pick up in verses 9 to 12. It says this. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all, right, un, excuse me, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Now listen to this phrase. Does this not sound like Isaiah 5.20? Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's Isaiah 5.20 being lived out. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, that is Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In the first century, there were many men and some women much like Elymas, sons of perdition, probably demonized in some way, probably were able to do some counterfeit miracles, claimed to know the future, and individuals like Sergius Paulus, proconsuls who were over entire regions, who knew that if they made mistakes, it could cost them their life, they would have these individuals. That's what the Magi were. The Magi of Matthew chapter 2, they're really soothsayers. They're giving advice. They're seeking the demonic in order to learn the future. That's what Elimelus is. And Paul and Barnabas stood in front of them. Understand Elimelus' problem. If he loses Sergius Paulus to the gospel, he loses his job. Because the Bible is very clear, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. 
And if you know Christ, the demonic is not for us. The horoscopes are not for us. The Ouija boards are not for us. The palm reading and the horoscopes, they're not for us. They belong to the enemy of our soul. And so here we have Sergius Paulus, this proconsul who's interested in the gospel, who employs Elymas, and Elymas is going to oppose the gospel. He's going to oppose Paul and Barnabas because among other things, his job is on the line. But Paul and Barnabas know 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And they're willing to stand with the Lord. They're willing to pick up the ball. They're willing to be Johnson, not giving the ball to somebody else, but actually going at the 300-pound defensive line because they believe, you believe that God is greater than he who is in the world. Well, interestingly enough, we know a lot about this story, not only from the book of Acts. Sir William Ramsey, an archaeologist in Cyprus, found an inscription about Sergius Paulus. He found an inscription that said Sergius Paulus was the proconsul, just as Scripture says, and that Sergius Paulus and his entire family came to a saving knowledge of Christ and were heavily involved in the Christian movement, the movement of the way from that day forward. Just another example of the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture being demonstrated by the spade of archaeology. So what are we to do with the text? I have a few thoughts. The first is this. I see God move. We see God move in the text when Christian women and Christian men who are bound together by Christ refuse to allow secondary issues like the color of our skin or our nationality or our gender. We refuse to allow secondary issues like how much or how little education we have or how much or how little is our bank account. And we bind together and move forward in the power of Christ. We see in the text, number two, that God delights when his people turn their face to the wall. That is, they get the distractions out of their life and they spend time praying and fasting and asking God to do what only God can do. Third, we see that God delights when you and I understand that we are Johnson and we're not so worried about a, can a cancel culture or cultural wars, but with grace and with humility and with a love, we stand for biblical truth. Fourth, there is a cost to sincere Christianity. Sometimes Christians say, you know what? It can't be this hard. God would never intend for it to be this hard. But sometimes he does. Sometimes, 2 Corinthians 1 to 3, God allows us to go through difficult times, not only to mold us and shape us and build us, but that we can mold and shape and build the next generation. That's really what the opening of 2 Corinthians actually teaches. 
And finally, God never leaves us alone. The text says that Paul and Barnabas were filled with the Holy Spirit. This actually answers a theological question that people ask. And that is, can a Christian have more of the Holy Spirit at some moments than others? And the answer is yes and no. How's that for straddling the fence? No, you can't have more of the Holy Spirit. At the moment in which you and I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit enters in us. He is the down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us is something we can ask for. We can have more of him, but we can have more of his power flowing through us. Ephesians 5, 18 be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask him to empower us because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we believe that. And so it is our job to be Johnson and take the ball with humility, with grace, with love, but not with compromise. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for all you teach me, teach us in the book of Acts. I thank you for Acts 13 today and how we ought to live. And Father, as that catechism question is asked, how do we glorify you? By loving you and obeying your commands, your laws, your scriptures. Help us to love you well today, even more tomorrow, and even more next week than this week. Grow us in our commitment to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.